0: Good morning, how are you? Oh, all right. super enthused. It's good to see you guys today. I hope you're well. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five. We're in the second part of our what did Jesus say uh, portion of, which is another part of this big picture series. So lots of parts, lots of things happening, um, but all really, really good stuff here. And so uh, this is a lengthy, lengthy text. That's all I know to tell you. There's a lot that Christ is saying um, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, but especially, I mean, this thing is just jam full of meat. And, uh, and there's a lot that really deserves a sermon in itself. And I know as I'm saying these things, some of you are like, oh man, what time is it? And, uh, and so I'm just going to kind of do a lot of summarizing today in some areas, because I think there's one central point that I want us to grasp today which really helps feed into what we've been doing with this big picture series and so uh, last week we what we said was about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's really just a continuation of Christ's sermon that he came preaching now that sermon hit he showed up on the scene preaching at Capernaum was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that was a validation of John's ministry, absolutely. It, it was a validation of, of the ministry that John had as the forerunner of Christ, that he was prepared the way to make a way in the wilderness, to prepare a way for the coming of Christ. And so John gets arrested, uh, eventually will be beheaded. And so Christ comes on the scene preaching the same message as a way to show some continuity there. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is just a long message about what repentance looks like. Like if you were trying to figure out what does it mean to repent, Christ is like, well, here you go. This is what it means to repent. So there was a whole crowd of people that had begun following Jesus. He had done a lot of miracles in their, um, in their vicinity, among their people, among them, and they followed him. And so this crowd has gathered around him. His disciples were there that he had chosen, and, uh, and he sits down on a mountain there in the area and begins to teach and so that's what we began with last week. Now, what we said last week was that true repentance—what Christ was teaching—is that true repentance begins in the love of God and ends in the hatred of sin. So we just looked at the Beatitudes there, uh, at how there's a progression to those, the way they they orchestrate themselves, the way Christ taught them as they're building one on top of the other. They're not just separate statements that we should treat as though they're like proverbs or something. They're they're uh, it's a message. It's a, it's a pastoral message being given to the people. And uh, so true repentance begins in the love of God and ends in the hatred of sin. In today's text, I think that Jesus is teaching this. The true nature of God's law demands total and radical holiness, which begins in the heart. So I'll repeat that. If you're taking notes, you can write that down there on your worship guide. The true nature, the true nature of God's law demands total and radical holiness total and radical holiness which begins in the heart let me pray for you heavenly father we thank you for your word father we thank you that we have an opportunity now to learn from your word lord would you be with us as we open up scripture as we hear uh, from your son jesus and what he has taught Uh, god help our hearts to be open to receive it that we too might be transformed by your Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's just just dive in here to what it is that Jesus is saying. Right out of the gate, Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, of the scribes and pharisees those religious leaders of the day you will never enter the kingdom of heaven wow now this paragraph captures the, the main point of our passage today this this right out of the gate is instructing we must understand this if we're to understand the rest of what we read today and again it's this idea that the true nature of god's law demands total and radical holiness which begins in the heart This is what he's saying. Jesus makes the statement that I have not come to abolish, but I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. It's another way of saying I've come to fulfill the Old Testament. He makes some corrective statements regarding the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees and the subsequent verses, but they must be read in light of this opening remark that I have come to fulfill these Old Testament teachings. Jesus fulfills the law. He doesn't alter it. He doesn't replace it. He doesn't void the Old Testament commands. Rather, He uh, reveals their true intent, their true purpose in His teaching, and He accomplishes everything that they taught through His obedience. All of the Old Testament, as we've been looking at throughout the Big Picture series, all of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God who sent to save God's people through His own life, death, and death. And resurrection this is the point of the old testament it's jesus christ though the law has been fulfilled in christ it is still stands as help for us today it will not pass away until the heavens and the earth pass away which will happen at the end of all things when christ returns and establishes the new heavens and the new earth For eternity where he will dwell with his people again God's people enjoying God's presence for God's purpose uh, within God's place for God's purpose the law is good and right this is what Paul says in Romans it is good for us it is useful for us it's useful for what for holiness it's useful for holiness It alone cannot make you holy. It alone cannot make you righteous. But by it, we see our unrighteousness. By it, we see that we are not holy as God is holy. We see through the law our need, our great need for a Savior. And that is what Jesus is getting at in verse 20. When he says there in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven have you ever heard something so outlandish that you were silenced so outlandish that you just couldn't you could you were dumbfounded to silence the crowd must have encountered a deafening silence upon hearing This statement, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The tension in that place would have been thick. They would have been thinking something to this effect. How in the world can our righteousness ever be greater than those who are teaching us the law? How can our righteousness ever be greater than the ones who are practicing the law so rigorously? They had to have been thinking, we are doomed. We're doomed. But Christ reveals that true righteousness is in the heart. That true righteousness is a matter of the heart. And that this is the heart Of the whole Old Testament teaching this is the heart of the law and the prophets it wasn't about simply teaching the law it wasn't simply about practicing the law or attempting to practice the law perfectly it was a matter of the heart had it been affected had it been arrested by faith in God this is what Jesus gets into look at verse 21 You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they'll remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. let's just deal with kind of this opening statement. You have heard that it was said... Jesus is making a reference here to the misapplication of God's law by the Pharisees and scribes. They were guilty of relaxing the commands. They are the ones of which He was speaking about. The ones who relax any one of these commands and teach others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of heaven. This is exactly what they were doing. They were making holiness merely about outward action. We'll get more into that Next week, but we have to touch on it some here because it's right here in front of us. The Pharisees and scribes missed the point of God's law. The point of God's law was a renewed heart that would seek to be holy as God is holy. In each of these commands that Jesus reviews, what he's doing is he's exposing their faulty priority on works by placing the highest value on one's heart. Believers, I don't want you to hear me wrong. As disciples of Jesus, we must absolutely be concerned with our personal holiness. But you must understand, you will never make yourself clean through right action. Right actions will never purify a dirty heart. You are made clean by right belief. You are made clean in the heart by Faith in Jesus Christ, namely in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That he, in his own death and resurrection, has covered the sins of all who will believe in him. And so what Jesus is saying here is that murder, anger, is a matter of the heart before it's a matter of our actions. Jesus is teaching that worship is the same way. It's a matter of the heart, not merely a matter of actions. Worshiping God while harboring anger in your heart toward a brother might look good to others on the outside. You might look holy to others on the outside, but it's not a true reflection of the kind of worship that God is after. It's not the kind of worship that God wants from us. True worshipers, Christ says, worship God in spirit and in truth. The reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ is a greater proclamation of the gospel than giving an offering. It's a greater proclamation of the gospel because it extends gospel grace to someone who might be undeserving of gospel grace in your estimation. But that's exactly why it's grace. Reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ is a greater proclamation of the gospel than lifting hands in worship or praying a prayer. Maybe it's over a meal. Maybe it's with friends. Maybe it's a sincere prayer for someone else. God is saying, do not do the other without first seeking reconciliation with your brother or sister. A brief moment of clarity because the times that we live in require clarity on such commands. If your brother has something against you, if your brother has something against you, implies that there is actually something against you. There is actually an offense. In a world of accusations that are motivated by selfish desires, in a world of accusations against one another, I think these accusations largely are motivated by selfish desires. What can I get out of ruining someone else's life? Jesus is not requiring you to bow down to this cultural monster that we see today. But where there is a real offense, where there is a real transgression of the law against a brother or sister, against a human, you must seek reconciliation quickly. When your brother has something against you implies there's really something there. And if that's the case, seek reconciliation quickly. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Let's read these. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better than, that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Lustful intent is adultery in the heart. When you see the command, I believe it's the seventh command in the Ten Commandments, and it says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. The literal form of this is not to commit adultery. Right? It's not to complete the action of adultery. But what is Jesus revealing here? He's revealing that that started in the heart before it started in an action with your right hand. It started in the heart. And though it's a matter of the heart, that does not mean that there are no preventative actions to be be taken. Jesus is not encouraging self-mutilation here. Though you could argue if that's necessary for you to keep from sinning, do it. But what Christ is saying, be radical in your approach to holiness. Do what it takes to remain holy. Holy. Men, he addresses men here, so I will too. There's a device that you can hold in your right hand, which can quickly cause you to commit adultery in your heart in a matter of seconds. In a matter of seconds. You might receive a text message from a friend, which contains an image of something that would cause you to commit adultery in a matter of seconds. It's fast-paced these days. I mean, it it doesn't take, I I can remember even as a teenager, even as a teenager, and I was a teenager before smartphones. (laughs) I was a teenager when there was still a little bit of work to do in committing adultery in the heart, lustful intent in the heart. But I'm telling you, men, that you ought to take drastic measures. That's not the only place to pursue this. It's just one of the most prevalent. But take drastic measures in preventing yourself from committing adultery in your heart. You say, well, I'm single. How can I commit adultery? Lustful intent in the heart. You're seeking to take advantage of another human being through your action. And it's wrong. And we must put an end to it, men. We must put an end to it. All right, So I encourage you men to do this. Um, it, you may not want to, to do this right now. But Proverbs 5. Just remember Proverbs 5. If you're seeking purity of heart, Proverbs 5, it, it, it ought to be your battle cry. It ought to be your war verse. And I just mean pretty much all of it, but definitely the latter half there of Proverbs 5. Write it down, memorize it, go to war against the enemy. Please, for the sake of your own soul. Jesus is encouraging radical holiness. Maybe you don't need a smartphone. Maybe you don't need social media. Maybe you need preventative measures. It begins in the heart of a person. But here's the issue. Your eyes feed your mind. Your eyes will typically be gazing upon whatever your heart desires. Now there's the random kind of chance scenario where you're presented with an opportunity for lust. But typically it's sought out. Either way, we must be like Job. We must be men like Job, make a covenant with God to not look upon another woman with lust in our heart. Amen? Let's protect our sisters in Christ. Let's protect even those women who may not yet be sisters in Christ and believe that God can save them. Your eyes feed your mind. Your mind dictates your actions. That is, whatever the right hand may take a hold of and lust. But before all of that, there was that heart issue that needed to be corrected. You do that through scripture memorization and prayer. Turning away from things, taking drastic measures and turning to the Lord. Listen, it's better to lose your smartphone than to lose your whole body in hell. It's better to lose that opportunity with that person than to lose your whole body in hell. It's better to lose that sexual satisfaction than to lose your whole body in hell. Amen? Let's move forward to something a lot easier. Divorce. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. (laughs) It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It appears that divorce and remarriage were as widely accepted in the first century world as they are in the 21st century. But Jesus does not accept the practice of easy divorce. Why? Because it's against God's command for marriage. A certificate of divorce was an allowance that was meant to protect the woman. It was meant to protect a woman from being divorced for no reason and then unable to be remarried. If she was given a certificate of divorce, she could be remarried. But even that was being abused. So Jesus says the man who does this, gives this certificate of divorce to his wife, makes the woman an adulterer. He is guilty of making her an adulterer. And by implication, he is also an adulterer. Jesus adds this allowance unless the divorce happens because of sexual immorality. But what he's getting at is a divorce should not happen at all unless it's in that case. This isn't the only reason for divorce. Paul, uttering words inspired by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 7, teaches us that there is another possible answer for divorce, rightful divorce, that it might occur when an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse on account of their beliefs and just decide, I can't live this life, I can't deal with your Christ, I can't deal with your Christianity, I can't deal with your desire for holiness. I don't want this anymore. And so they abandon their believing spouse. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 19 That whether or not sexual immorality or something else may have occurred, believers are to seek to honor God in their marriages by remaining married and not looking for a quick exit. You can argue that if spouses where there has been sexual immorality are able to reconcile under God, that this is one of the greatest examples of the gospel that we could see in front of our face. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a prophet. I always get Haggai confused. Anyway, there was a prophet who took a woman named Gomer to be his wife. It's a terrible name for a woman, I agree. He He took this woman, Gomer, to be his wife. Well, the problem with Gomer was she lived on the wrong side of the tracks. Gomer was a prostitute. But God tells the prophet, I want you to take Gomer to be your wife. Why? Well, God says this is is to be used as a real-life example to my people Israel of what it means for me to continue to pursue an unfaithful bride. A harlot for a bride. You see, God in great grace continues to pursue us even though we are unfaithful brides to him. We turn to worldly pleasures. We turn to the loves of this world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life and its achievements. We turn to those things regularly. And in so doing, we prove ourselves unfaithful to God. So Gomer continues to cheat on the prophets prophet continues to go and rescue Gomer from her prostitution. And God is saying this, this is what it's like to have the people of Israel as my people. And in so doing he's saying this is what it's like to have the people of God as my people the church as my people. If you've been wrongly divorced, if you've you've wrongly remarried, you're not forever in adultery. I want you to understand that today. It's not that you should seek a divorce from your spouse now so that you can go reconcile with your ex. That would just be adding wrongs on top of wrongs. What's been done has been done. And now what you are to do is to turn and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus Christ. Receive the forgiveness of your sins. Receive cleansing for your heart. Be washed. Be made new. And seek to glorify God in your new marriage. Amen? Glorify Him in that new marriage. There's so much more to say about all these things, but we've got to got to move and move more quickly than I am. Matthew five thirty three through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. All of you who use Herod, I said, uh uh-uh. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So again, Jesus is answering these statements. You have heard that it was said. He's saying, here's the false teaching, here's the right belief, the right action in these things here's what it really demands in your heart and so jesus again is attacking the heart of an oath why should a man have to take an oath if he is trustworthy if he has integrity a man's heart should verify his words rather than his words seek to verify his words (laughs) through promises and swears Do not swear by anything, Jesus is saying, because everything belongs to God. Everything is His. Speak as though every word you utter is under oath. Your word matters. Your word matters because it reveals your heart. Reveals the intents of your heart. So speak with integrity. If a man has integrity, then let him be believed. His right heart before God will lead to right character, and that grants him the trust of others. Look at Matthew 5:38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. To receive a slap on the right cheek suggests that what Christ has in view here is a right-handed backhand. A right-handed backhand would land on your right cheek. So, Jesus is talking about how to rightly receive the insults and accusations of others with a right heart. There would be no greater insult to someone than to backhand them across the face. Christ is saying, when you endure such insults, turn to them the other cheek. Jesus captures the heart of what it takes to be the kind of person who wants to serve his enemies with the love of Christ. When you do this, when you refuse retaliation, when you refuse vengeance, when you leave vengeance to the Lord, which is true, rightful, just vengeance, when you leave it to Him, you take control from your enemies. The ball is in your court Again, the serve is in your hand. This is the kind of behavior that Paul says is like heaping burning coals on top of someone's head. Listen to Romans 12, 18 through 21. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, right? Because you can control whose actions? Your own. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I mean, you know, he can repay better than I could repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. What's What's better than vengeance given? Grace. I mean, you understand what our heart, what has to happen in here for us to really believe that mercy and grace extended to an enemy is better than vengeance. You've got to be transformed on the inside. That can't be just flesh in there. That's got to be a heart reborn by the Spirit of God. This is exactly what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, vengeance belongs to God. It is not ours. Ours is the feeding of a hungry enemy, ours is the giving something to drink to an enemy who is thirsty. And what does he say? For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> What would be more frustrating than to try to be so awful to someone and yet all they ever are to you is gracious do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good I want you to understand none of this negates self-defense None of this says I cannot stand for what's right. None of this says that I must bow down to the attackers. In many ways, you could say it is unloving towards your enemy to allow them to continue to abuse you. Amen? That's unloving. A willingness to forego one's personal rights, a Willingness to allow oneself to be insulted or imposed upon is not compatible with a firm stand for matters of principle and for the rights of others. We have clear evidence in Scripture that there are times to defend yourself. Acts 16.37 But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. So Paul and his companions had been beaten for sharing the gospel, for preaching the gospel. Been thrown into prison. Once they found out that these men were Roman citizens, they freaked out a bit. They're like, let's release them. In the dead of night, nobody can see it happen. Just be gone. And Paul says, uh-uh. <laughs> You're going to understand all the shame of what you've done. You're going to feel all the guilt of this. Acts twenty two twenty five. 25. When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, You understand the image here. Paul has been beaten already. Paul has been laid out, stretched out to be whipped more. And this is what he says. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Acts 25, 8 through 12. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. You see, there is a right, there is a time where it is right to invoke citizenship, (laughs) to invoke the law, to understand the law, to know the law, and to use it in your defense. We must not bow to the mobs on a matter of principle. They will disagree with our message. We have every right to stand for truth, and so we should. And there's a long list of things we ought to discuss as we talk about standing for truth, and we'll just have to do that at another time. But do not be deceived by much of what you hear in the conservative arenas on what it means to stand for truth. Please. Matthew 5, 38 through 43-48. through 48. What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There it is, a bookend. The sons of the Father are those who extend unmerited grace to others just as they have received by the love of God through Jesus Christ. We extend His grace. We touched on this a little bit last week. When you're extending grace to someone, when you're loving your enemy, you're extending a grace and a love that is not your own. It's the kind of grace that transformed your heart. A kind of love that once you received, made you a lover of God. And apart from Him... You have no grace no real love to offer but through him you have the very grace and love of God to offer and that is truly loving At the end of this Jesus says be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect Jesus' book ended his correction of these statements from these teachers And it confirms the central point of what Jesus is teaching his followers. The true nature of God's law demands total and radical holiness, which begins in the heart. So Jesus started with, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends with, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must seek perfection and holiness, even though it's impossible in this life. You don't seek perfection and holiness to be seen by others, for that lacks holiness. You seek perfection and holiness so that you might better reflect the glory of God in the earth as His image bearers. The only way you're going to do this is to receive a righteousness that is not your own. That righteousness belongs to Jesus Christ. Your righteousness, Paul writes, is as filthy rags. It means it's gross. More than that. But Christ's righteousness is perfect. It's spotless. It's blameless. Without blemish, as they say. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. He knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ has bore the sins of many, so that those many might call on Him by faith, and be saved from their sins. Receive new life in Christ. If you're to be perfect as God is perfect, you're going to need a perfection that isn't your own. You're going to need the perfection of Christ, the righteousness of Christ in your life. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for this word. We thank you, Father, for your kindness, your grace toward us. Father, would you help us to believe the word that we've heard today? Would you help us, Father, to follow your commands Help us to lean on the righteousness of Christ in our life and not our own. Help us, Lord, to not be like those scribes and Pharisees who relaxed the law so that it was more palpable, so that it was easier to do. And even then, it was impossible. Father, help us to capture what Christ is teaching here that we need new hearts. We need the law of God to be written on those new hearts so that we might follow you. Father, would you grant us faith today? Or if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you, would you grant them faith in your Son today that they too might be saved from their sins and receive a new life in Christ Jesus? Father, for my believing brothers and sisters in here, would you help them and me to not be like that man in James who looks into the perfect mirror of the law, sees the blemish on our face, sees all the ways in which we are unkept and just merely walks away? Father, would you help us look into that mirror, see where we are unkept, see where we are undone. Help us, Lord, to turn in that humility to Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to repent of our sins, to confess those sins, to receive forgiveness for our sins. That, may we, that we might pursue perfection, that we might pursue maturity, that we might become those fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ as we see in Colossians 1. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray today. Amen.